This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices, sharing their thoughts and perspectives. On today's show, you'll learn about the Diversity Coalition San Luis Obispo's new programs. Individuals coming from various cultures and traditions, they bring in nuances that would support decision-making. Also, the Grape Nut explores pairing wine with leftover Halloween candy. I prefer the peanut butter cup with the peanut. Tell me why. A little bit of peanut butter and jelly in my head. That's what I'm getting. Interesting. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, November 6th, 2023. I'm Gabriela Fernandez. Let's start with the nonprofit story. Good afternoon and welcome to the nonprofit story. This is Dr. Consuelo Mukes. I'm excited today to bring to you some special guests that are going to be talking about a brand new program in this county. Rita Casaverde, the executive director of Diversity Coalition Slow, and Victoire Prothro, the program director of the BIPOC Board Leadership Training Program. So, Rita and Vicki, welcome to the nonprofit story. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, this is exciting. I know we've talked to Diversity Coalition slow before. However, this is a new day and time. So, Rita, I want to start with you. Explain to us again the mission and purpose of the Diversity Coalition slow and what you're up to. Yeah, so our mission is really to build a coalition um, that can come together and advance the efforts of diversity, equity, and inclusion through education and advocacy. And advocacy is something that we recently have added as part of our mission. So, we have been doing education for a long time, really since the beginning of the coalition. Um, And, you know, we have educational programs through schools and with the community. And I think on that note, we have been expanding um, how else we can educate the community so we can advance the the mission and really advance diversity, equity, and inclusion in San Luis Obispo County. And with that exploration and just organic growth and interest from the community is how this BIPOC board leadership training uh, was created. Yes, and that's exciting. We want to hear more about that. Let me ask you first, in this county, are you seeing changes as far as diversity, equity, inclusiveness, or do you still see a big need for that here? I think both. We are seeing change. Um, I think we have to give a big shout out to the city of Slow. Uh, they, in 2020, I think, answered the call that a lot of people had when it comes to diversity and when it comes to inclusion and creating spaces of belonging. And their Office of DEI, of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, was created and also funds for nonprofits that are working on diversity, equity, and inclusion. I, that formation. It really has given that support to small nonprofits, community-based organizations that are interested in doing the work here in the county. And I think a lot of other cities like Morve or Royal Grande, we really are seeing that they are uh, funding efforts around diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I think we need a lot more city governments, the county itself, and businesses and community leaders across Low County to really do the work. But we are really seeing community leaders all over the, the county. We have, for example, uh, in San Miguel, we have a library with an amazing leader mm-hmm. that is building amazing programs and really keeping the community in mind. We are seeing the same thing in Nipomo and Oceano. So 
there's a lot to be hopeful for, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of work to be done as mm-hmm. well. So you're really spreading out everywhere yes. in the county and beyond. Yeah, thank you for noting that because we started as Five Cities Diversity Coalition, so in the south part of the county, and we were formed after in cross burning in Arroyo Grande, where a black family was targeted. Mm-hmm. And um, just in the last four years is when the uh, coalition, Five Cities Diversity Coalition, said, you know what, our work has to be countywide, and that's where we are right now. So we have taken our educational programs to high schools like Paso Robles, we are all over the coast in Moore Bay, um, in Slow, and so yeah, we're definitely expanding, but there's a lot of work to be done. Mm-hmm. And you're mentioning your programs that mm-hmm. you're taking into schools and all as one of the main ways that you're getting this information out. What type of programs does this include? Mm-hmm. So we have a school speaker program where we have different speakers that have different um, diverse stories of their own that come to schools and share them with high school students. And it's the most amazing thing to see because sometimes we go with preconceived ideas of what that talk is going to be like, what the reaction is going to be. And students are so amazing. Like high school students just have the most mm-hmm. interesting questions that take that empathy level to a different level, really. Uh, for example, we taken a Afghan refugee to Pasorobos High School and to Morro Bay High School and I think in one of those schools I think it was Morro Bay High School one student asked how old are you to mm-hmm. the Afghan refugee? And the Afghan refugee, uh, Abdullah, who's an amazing speaker for a school speaker program, he said, you know what, in my culture, we don't track age mm-hmm. or birthdays. And that alone opened up a whole different way of seeing the world, mm-hmm. right? We're yes. not even on the same page when it comes to tracking or birthdays. Mm-hmm. And those are like foundational things that we take for granted. So. It opened up the conversation to if we don't see age the same way, of course, we're not going to see many other things that are foundational to or believe. So another example is we took Cambodian refugees to Pasarobos High School and to Arroyo Grande High School as well. And the Cambodian refugees had shared their, their story of res- resilience, but also how much pride they had about their culture and what they were doing in LA about their culture mm-hmm. and how they've had like Cambodia town created since they were since they moved to LA how there's like this annual festival and you know the celebration of being Cambodians and one student during the Q&A raised her hand and said you know what every time that someone asked me where I'm from I used to say from China because I didn't think that people would know where Cambodia was from. But starting today, I'm going to be proud to say I'm from Cambodia. I think what you're doing is letting us know that diversity goes beyond some of the stereotypical ways we think about it. So what are you seeing as diversity? How broad are you as far as what you're presenting to the community? Mm-hmm. Well, we try to match our speakers to, at least for the schools, we try to match them with what they're learning in school. There are things that are covering world history, and there are things that are just not. Mm-hmm. And so those are things that we're you know, working to see if those can be topics that we can bring in more in our community program, which is we have a fostering understanding in our community series. And with that program, we bring 
sometimes the same speakers, sometimes different speakers to talk about issues with the community that are open to everyone, not just um, high school students through world history or English or history classes. We just had a drag performer, Skinny Mocha, talked about their experience as a drag performer and as a um, employee at Cal Poly and a student at Cal Poly, what um, their experience has been and being from a Latinx background too, what it felt to come out as drag and what it means for them to be drag in San Luis Obispo County and what kind of support they would need from the community. And so those are topics that we identify that would be better to talk with the community as a whole. And we try to add other elements, like for example, for that specific talk, we brought in business owners who host drag shows just to share what the impact in their customer base and just their culture and values has been by you know hosting these drag shows and how much they encourage other business owners to invest in that type of entertainment as well. Um, so yeah, we're trying to really think outside the box on how we bring in topics and we're trying to be as diverse as we're capable of. So you're looking at everything, not just the, the look of the color of somebody's skin, but mm-hmm. you're looking at the thought processes, the economy, mm-hmm. how everything is impacted in the community when you see diversity. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Consuelo Mukes with the Nonprofit Story. I have today Rita Castaverde. She is the Executive Director of Diversity Coalition Slow, and Vicki Prothro. She is the Program Director of the BIPOC Board Leadership Training Program. Yeah. And I know education is a big topic for you with the Diversity Coalition and that mm-hmm. you're getting some new programs in there. And so that's why we have Victoire with us here. And our, can we call you Vicky while you're here? Yes, please do. I know there's a new program that's getting started. And uh, Vicky, you are going to be in control of that program or getting it going. <laughs> and I think it's long overdue because it's with nonprofits and bringing in BIPOC leaders for nonprofit boards. So tell us what that is. First of all, tell us what are what's a BIPOC leader. So BIPOC is an acronym for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. BIPOC. And I'd like to share a little bit of the way in which this all came about. I recently moved here from the Los Angeles area and meeting Rita, we had conversations about what I did in Los Angeles. I was the director of communications and operations for the African American Board Leadership Institute, which unapologetically recruited and trained black professionals for board leadership and governance and worked with various nonprofit organizations and government agencies to support them with their diversity recruitment efforts. Rita caught the vision in my conversation and she said, we need that here. And I said, oh, okay, thinking this was just a conversation we were having. And then it became Monthly, yes, (laughs) from your point of view. (laughs) For me, it was just a conversation and building a relationship with you, which I have cherished very much. And with that, uh, our meetings became pretty regular where we started to actually develop a work plan about how to bring in a specific BIPOC board leadership training program, understanding the population demographics here in Slow County it would be beneficial to be more inclusive and bring in black, indigenous, and people of color. So that's what we decided we would name it, was the BIPOC Board Leadership Institute. And I'd also like to 
make a reference, there are other ethnic groups that are doing board leadership training programs. In the Los Angeles area, there is also the AAPI, the Asian Pacific Islander Organization, has a specific program for their constituents. There is the Hispanic Board Leadership Institute up in Silicon Valley. There's Women on Boards, which is a very international organization training and supporting women for the path of corporate board leadership. So bringing us back here where we are today, what I've been asked to do with my experience is develop and execute a BIPOC board leadership training program. Who can come to this program? Who's eligible? The eligibility is pretty broad in the confinements, if you will, of BIPOC professionals. We're looking for those individuals that are seeking some board guidance on how to get on a board, never been on a board, and those individuals that have experience on a board that want to expand their network, that want to connect with other BIPOC professionals, whether it be for their professional endeavors or if it's possibly recruiting for some open board placements on the boards where they serve. Mm -hmm. There are opportunities for individuals to secure commission positions with the government agencies and be aware that to apply for a commission position is very much a realistic opportunity. And so we want to encourage that. Why is it important? I think the importance comes from the awareness that diverse voices individuals coming from various cultures and traditions, they bring in nuances that would support decision-making. And while the individual has their own background, shared experiences in the boardroom that are making decisions for underrepresented communities is very important. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes there is a inverse in the percentage of board representations, predominantly white, that are making decisions for underrepresented communities. And so having others at the table making these decisions is very critical, is very important, and it's necessary. And while this is target to the slow county, this is a national issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a quote that I'd like to share with you from the Ann E. Casey Foundation that reported at least 60% of all nonprofits in the nation report serving black, indigenous, and people of color, yet reports show that 84% of nonprofit boards identify as white. Mm -hmm. So this, I think, is the um, glaring light of the the disproportionate roles that predominantly white people have. Yes, and I think here in this county, we do not even have that amount of people have uh, diversity on board of directors, at least with nonprofits, Mm -hmm. unless that's changed recently. Yeah, I would like to defer to Rita. Rita, uh, Diversity Coalition was part of a unity report with the Slow County uh, Sheriff's Department Mm -hmm. after a lot of egregious hate crimes were perpetrated on their citizens and residents here in the area. I think it was after the George Floyd death. And so if you want to speak on that, because there was great information and statistics that came out of that Mm -hmm. report. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And after 2020, Sheriff Ian Parkinson had made some statements about systemic racism not existing here in the county, or at least not having seen them. Um, And a group of community leaders came together in a conversation with him, which I think, you know, props to him for 
being open to sitting down and learning more from different perspectives. And mm-hmm. there were different community leaders that came together and said, so you're a white male in a position of leadership here in Slough County, so you probably have not seen it. And I think that's the reality that a lot of people who have not felt systemic racism, it's hard for them to grasp on the depth of it. But this group of community leaders said, what if we come together and we bring data that would show that systemic racism does exist. And so that actually, that uh, unit report that shows systemic racism in San Luis Obispo County, it's really a, a turning point. Maybe, I don't know if the report was thought of it this way when it was created, but it really has opened the eyes to a lot of people that we have an over-representation of the white population, specifically on positions of leadership. Until uh, Mayor Eric Stewart, we hadn't had any mayor of color, if you look at the DAs, they all have been white and male for the history of the county. I could go on and on and on with the overrepresentation of white leadership and uh, the underrepresentation and the lack of fair representation from other communities in the county. And like Vicky mentioned, you know, when we have people at a decision making table designing solutions to solve a problem that they have never experienced, there will be blind spots on those solutions. And I think on the nonprofit side, there has been a huge interest from since I was hired by Diversity Coalition, the week I was hired, I started getting calls from nonprofits that are interested in diversifying their boards because they realized that they were having those blind spots. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that recognition is also progress. And as I was meeting Vicky and the way that she was telling the story of how we started thinking about this program, I was literally getting calls from nonprofits saying, hey, can you connect me with someone? And so, you know, put two and two together. That's fantastic. <laughs> and the program was yeah. born. Mm-hmm. And the really exciting part is that we're not creating any BIPOC leaders, right? Because those are already out there. It's really letting them know that they can join a board and they have everything to join the board. We're just gonna add a few things here and there around nonprofit governance and finance and fundraising and leadership and nonprofits. But really a lot of the the people that we're seeing that are coming into the training already have so many of those leadership qualities that nonprofits are craving. Uh-huh. Um, so we're gonna be providing that certificate telling them you can do this, like we, we see you, you can do it. And also we have a component of matching. So we're gonna have a mixer in December with nonprofits and the trainees so they can get to know each other and see what the best fit is. And so they can start joining those boards or going for those government commissions. I'm glad that Rita brought that up. That's the continuation, if you will, of this program. It doesn't just stop there with the training of the BIPOC professionals. We're building a pipeline of individuals that are board ready, and we are excited to provide an opportunity for the nonprofits to meet these individuals that went through the program to facilitate a board matching and placement uh, networking services, if you will, to also encourage those nonprofits to be aware of their responsibility and the need to embark upon their due diligence to learn about bringing in a person of color. What does that mean? And what space are you providing for them? And what space are you allowing them to be a part of that decision making as opposed to unfortunately just checking off a box, Mm -hmm. their window dressing. This is more than that. And then 
in that understanding the responsibility of retaining that individual. Um, so we're working towards building a subsequent program, if you will, which is board training for the nonprofits to come into a space mm-hmm. where they would receive facilitation in DEI and recruitment efforts and retention. And I think that's critical and that's very responsible of us as individuals, as us as diversity coalition representatives, agents of that organization. And so I'm really thrilled about this. And I was just hired in May of this year and we're launching the inaugural class in November of this year. So moving fast. Yes, yes. And And we we are not mm -hmm. doing it alone though. We do have very important partners in the community, spokes for example, is helping us with that component of board training and we have so many other partners in the county who have said hey we need this come with us also trying to work with other leadership programs that are that are more lengthy in duration but that are very interested in that cross-pollination of previously identified leaders in the community who might identify themselves as BIPOC and also from our alumni that we will start having where uh, we will have our own BIPOC board leadership trainees that might be interested in those longer format trainings too. So that means that you'll be able to address a lot of things like being sure there's not just tokenism of people mm-hmm. on the board and allowing yes. people to move towards higher positions yes. like maybe board chair. Yes. You know? yes. yes. And yes. maybe eventually getting into paid positions where yes. you get good money in a nonprofit. So I'm a lot of changes. That up. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what this is. This is a pathway to corporate mm-hmm. board leadership. And oftentimes individuals are being vetted unknowingly. Um, by potential uh, boards and organizations looking to diversify their board. They're looking for specific skill sets. They're looking for specific education and experience. And having this opportunity on their resume and their conversation demonstrates they have an understanding about basic board governance. Mm -hmm. And so with the other elements of understanding what that what that means we're offering the the basics of board leadership and that is Rita said you know board governance nonprofit finance uh, networking fundraising strategic leadership uh, understanding implicit bias even us as BIPOC individuals we have ours and how we navigate through those systems and through those situations is very important and it's a skill set it's also understanding that when you're entering into a board that there is an established organizational culture and how do you fit in well you fit in understanding that you're ready mm-hmm. one and that two this organization's program focus is something that you align with. Ideally, this is why you're on that board, but also to to understand your responsibility as a community resident. Tell everyone they're interested in this program, how to find out more about it and maybe to apply. Yes, please go to diversityslow.org, the website and uh, click on programs and you'll find us there. We have a great page and we're accepting enrollment for the inaugural class. We're scheduled to have two classes per year, the fall and the springtime. We're tracking pretty well in filling this fall class. So I urge your audience to to share or if the listener themselves identify as a BIPOC individual, 
to go online and apply, uh, and we'd love to have them. I'm really hopeful that this is uh, the beginning of a fruitful endeavor for all of us, for all of us. This is exciting. I can't wait to have you back on once the program gets started so we can hear more about it. And I've been speaking with Rita Casaverde. She's the Executive Director of Diversity Coalition Slow and Victoire Prothro, the Program Director of the BIPOC Board Leadership Training Program of that same organization. This is Dr. Consuelo Mukes, and this is The Nonprofit Story. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast, and you're listening to Issues and Ideas. I'm Gabriela Fernandez. Up next, The Grape Nut. Hi, it's Betsy Nash, The Grape Nut. And like you, I'm nuts about wine. Truth be told, I'm also nuts about candy. I mostly have that under control now, but I wonder how many other kids were much more interested in the candy rather than the costumes on Halloween. All right, can you see where I'm going here? Ah, yes. Today we'll be combining two things I'm nuts about, candy and wine. It really is a thing. My sister sent me an article about pairing candy with wine and after my initial shudder, I thought, heck yeah, let's do this. So go sneak into your kid's stash of sweet loot, settle back and learn about what might become your favorite part of Halloween and meet Ivy Thompson from Region Wine Bar in downtown San Luis. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, this is this is going to be fun. I can't see why it wouldn't be fun. Anyway, to explain, when you go into Region, you can pay for, out of all of these 50 wines, you can pay for a taste, and you'll get that much in your glass. You can pay for a half a glass, right? Mm-hmm. You can pay for a full glass, and you can buy a bottle. Exactly. So I didn't want you to have to open six bottles, so here we are. Ivy, tell me, you've, you've got all these spigots, you've got all of these wines sort of in a wall mm-hmm. at Region. What's going on behind the spigots, the part that I can't see? I know it's not boxes of wine, but if you explain how it works. Within each machine, um, we actually, there's like no kegs or any really large format bottles behind it. We go individual bottles, so seven fifty milliliter bottles, and we put these little caps in there and the tube shoots in argon gas to keep the wine fresh. Uh-huh. That can preserve the wine for up to two months, but we switch out bottles daily, so usually it doesn't last more than a couple days. I brought the candies. I'll talk about the candies, and then you'll be the expert on the wines. Again, if you haven't gone into your kid's bedroom to get their bag of candy, uh, now's the time to do it. I brought Hershey Bar, Kit Kat, the most popular candy in the United States every year, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. The best. Didn't know that. Okay, and then, then Milky Way, and then we won't tell them <laughs> till the end because, again, this one blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Is there any rational way we should do this like we do in a normal tasting or pairing? My gut is saying to start just with the lightest wine. Yeah. I poured... The Union Sacre Riesling from Riven Rock Vineyard, which is over pretty coastal vineyard out near Cambria. And I have this one paired with the candy that you are Ooh. secretive. Oh. It's, it's a great way to start, though. I'm not I mean, sure I've whole... ever had a Sour Patch Kid. <laughs> I can't believe we're going to pair this. I'm looking at all the flavors of Sour Patch Kids in front oh. of me. And let's start with a little taste of the Riesling. Is that the way you usually do a pairing? Is you want to put the wine in your mouth first before you put the food in your mouth? It just gets your palate fresh. This oh. is delicious and light. This is a completely dry Riesling, which yeah. I think that is the biggest thing 
to debunk in the industry is Riesling. Oh, yeah. It's such a bad rep, and it is like the most food-friendly wine. You can pair it with just about anything, and it's usually relatively inexpensive. Now, with a Riesling, don't you usually look for the residual sugar? Isn't yes. that how to tell if it's the sweet Riesling we grew up with or if it's not? Yeah. Which candy are we picking up here? I'm going to start with the yellow. That's lemon. lemon. Mm -hmm. So it's a sweet and it's making my mouth water. Mm. I'm going to do a little sip of the wine. The first taste I got felt kind of bitter. Mm -hmm. A way to look at wine pairing, you want to pair a wine that is sweeter than the food you're eating, you generally pair, speaking. Okay, let me say that again. You <laughs> want to pair a wine that is sweeter than the food you are eating. Yes. Whether it's sweet or savory food. Yes, so the reason I picked the Riesling and the Sour Patch kind of comparatively is another way to look at pairings is pairing like with like. Okay. So really high acid, a lot of yeah. citrus notes. Yeah. Like my two favorite things. <laughs> it's like sweets and wine. <laughs> I know, really. Isn't this awful? <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to The Grape Nut, part of KCBX Issues and Ideas. I'm Betsy Nash, and my guest is Ivy Thompson from the Region Wine Bar in San Luis Obispo. And we're in the middle of our tasting and our pairing of Halloween candy and local wines. So this is so fun. We're up to now a Pinot. Stephen Ross is one of those smaller wineries, mm -hmm. smaller producers, but has a great reputation. Do you want to start it with the Kit Kat first to see? Yeah, let's do it. You know, now I have the Pinot in my mouth and I'm going to eat the Kit Kat. You're taking smaller bites than I am. Creating menus and tastings, I've learned I have to take very small bites. Right. Because then I'll, before I know it, and smaller sips, because then I'll be really not productive. <laughs> you know, and I need to take smaller sips. That's no. For sure. no. Well, the Kit Kat goes great with that Pinot. Mm -hmm. Pinot in the Reese's peanut butter cups? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. No, it does taste pretty good. It feels like a really good pairing with the Pinot. The other side of food and wine pairing that I've learned and everyone's palate is completely different. It's the yeah. same with like everyone liking point. different wine. Some people have way more sensitive taste buds than others, and it's uh, it's cool Boy. to see what other people come up with. But now, now I'm getting curious about other wines that I have <laughs> lined up with the candy. Good. But I prefer the peanut butter cup with the Pinot. Tell me why. A little bit of peanut butter and jelly in my head. That's oh, what I'm getting. Interesting. Of course. <laughs> so maybe a really jammy exactly. like Zin or something. And that's the next red one I'm going to pour. This is a great fun thing that I haven't done, so I'm curious if the Zinfandel that we have is gonna be really cool with these like more milk chocolate candy bars that we have. Well, I brought extra Good. of everything. As we should. <laughs> oh my gosh, look at the color. It's so pretty. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right, so let's get centered here. You've just poured four reds, and we've already had the Reese's Pieces and the Kit Kat. Yes. So we've still got the Hershey's and the Milky Way to go, correct? Yes, yeah. So tell me what you poured. So I poured um, in the first glass the Seven Oxen. It's a 2017 vintage. So it goes Gamay, Pinot, Zin, Blend. So Zinfandel from Seven Oxen, they're a winery just like, they're technically Tin City or like oh. right in the entrance to Tin City. And where um, do they get their grapes? Templeton. Everything is organic that they work with. So. This is their reserves of Vendel from 2017, so it's got a nice Ooh, age on it. 17. <laughs> All right, so I like it that you highlight some of the smaller wineries. 
I love these local and really small producers. I feel so lucky because I've gotten to meet everybody oh. behind this. Actually, more wineries than we have in region, just as what I've sure. found myself in doing. You but, would need to. Yeah. And the other side of it is being from a Midwest transplant. The reason the Midwest knows about Paso Robles is for wineries that are big enough to sell there. That's so a like, good point. Is you can find like three or four major brands anywhere in the Midwest. And yeah. if it gets them here, like as a hospitality and service, like person facing tourists all the time, you feel a sense of responsibility to be like, yes, go see the place that you love and have had. But then also like, like go around the corner. That's and awesome. See this husband and wife that it's a passion project. And yeah. yeah. The wineries and the winemakers are like farmers, scientists, and artists. It's and true. I love it. Absolutely true. Left to right. I have the Gamay, the Pinot, the uh, Zin mm-hmm. Reserve. What, what's the last one? The last one is a, it's called Fait Accompli from McPrice Myers. Uh, Fait Accompli. It. So it's a blend. What is it? Um, Syrah, Cab, and Petit Verdot. I have the Zinfandel okay. with the Hershey bar. That is my pairing that I have recommended. Yeah. And I think we can, we can start there. Yeah. And I expect the Hershey bar to be not as sweet as the Kit Kat. What do yes, you think? I would think so. Oh, wait a minute. I went for the candy first. <laughs> that Zinfandel paired with the bacon wrapped dates from Luna Red. Ooh. Yeah. That's going to be good. Or a big juicy steak. Exactly. Okay. Or a Hershey bar. <laughs> There's something about Hershey bars. I just got to tell you nice but i'm going to recommend trying it with the pinot yeah now i'm curious this is not blowing my mind mm-hmm. i want to ask you too do you leave some food in your mouth i know we start with a, a little bit of the wine mm-hmm. cleanse our palate or get their palate ready whatever then take a bite of the candy or the food do you leave some food in your mouth before you take your next sip i leave a tiny bit i don't know if that's like the correct thing or rec- i don't know if i sh- professionally need to recommend that to people but i like to just to Make sure I'm getting the full experience. Okay. Because I just did with a Hershey bar. What did you think? Uh, I don't think it added anything. Okay. I feel like I'm going to like it with the peanut butter. And I'm going to guess it's re- going to respond well to the Hershey. I like it with the Hershey bar. Mm-hmm. I, I actually, too. now I want to Reese's taste like with the Zinfandel. Okay. You know, the Zin is not a fruit bomb. Mm-mm. This Zin is, I mean, I said it could lay down longer, but it's already pretty well balanced. Mm-hmm. I like the Hershey bar with the Stephen Ross Pinot and the peanut butter cup with the Zinfandel better. I have to, I have to say the same. Mm-hmm. The wine and the candy both stand up better in that pairing mm-hmm. with the Zin. I like that we came to that conclusion. We're amazing. We are so smart. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to The Grape Nut, part of KCBX Issues and Ideas. I'm Betsy Nash, and my guest is Ivy Thompson from the Region Wine Bar in San Luis Obispo. And we're tasting and pairing Halloween candy and local wines. McPrice Myers. I met somebody pouring McPrice Myers. They had this sticker that says, McPrice Myers, no, we're not a law firm, we're a winery. <laughs> so that, that was almost good enough for me. I remember when people used to just buy wine, maybe some still do, mm-hmm. buy the label. I bought it by the sticker. I've got to admit it. So this is the one that is not a GSM. It is a blend of... Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Syrah, and Petit Verdot. It's so approachable. So I'm smelling some nice 
fruit, mm -hmm. like like macerated berries of some sort, but mm -hmm. also some not quite leather and it's not quite pepper. What did you pair? But I do think it will do great with a Milky Way. Let's do it. There's a lot going on there. This is like so much nostalgia right now for me. I don't know how it was in your family, but when we brought home our candy, it went in a drawer or something in our mm -hmm. bedroom and stuff. We were allowed one piece a day. That sounds exactly like how I was raised. Yeah. Well, I think this pair is That's great. That's great. That is actually, that is delicious. There are a couple today that have been real eye openers and really, really perfect. The Gamay. Oh, the Gamay. Yeah. With the Kit Kat? Yes. Yeah. You were talking earlier about how it's better perhaps to have the wine a little sweeter than the food. It was fun to be creative because we don't have any off-dry muscats or yeah. anything like right. late harvest, but... um when I've done chocolate pairings with Mama Ganache and I've sat in oh. and I've seen like, cause we've done chocolate and wine things with them before. Oh, nice. And it's very cool seeing it from like a chocolatier's perspective uh -huh. versus wine. And I always anticipated that dark chocolate would just be better inherently. And specifically actually with the Stephen Ross Pinot, right. we found that it just paired really well with milk chocolates. Mm. I think the last one specifically, cause I feel like the McPrice Myers did really well mm. with the caramel. Yes. Because of the like, I don't think it's a super juicy wine, but it definitely has a lot of fruit to it, but enough structure to stand up to the caramel. And then I, I had a feeling the Gamay would be a good chocolate because it's just such a approachable wine. Mm -hmm. And that is something when you're looking at food mm -hmm. and wine pairings, even for Thanksgiving or Christmas or any other holiday, right. Right. wines that are really inherently approachable are going to go with more foods gotcha. in general. Sure, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about a, a tawny port because I do love port. Mm -hmm. And it's almost, it, it's, it could be a sweet in, it, in and of itself, of mm -hmm. course. Would that be a darker chocolate? I would be curious to try that with both milk and dark chocolate. Since it does have so much residual sugar yeah. and alcohol, I think you could do chocolates that have the cherry and like the white like chocolate around it. Oh, I feel like that would be really yummy with a port. Okay. But I'd have to try it like we did today and possibly change my mind, which we did. We did. Once you taste it, you don't know. And I appreciate that. The mm -hmm. fact that we got to try all of these. This me has too. been a blast. Thank you. I so appreciate you thinking of me. It's been so fun. That's it. I'm gonna, I got a sugar high and a wine mellow. So I don't know if I should go take a nap or run around the block. <laughs> but for issues and ideas, this is Betsy Nash, the Grape Nut. Uh, again, best job in the world. <laughs> You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Gabriela Fernandez. Up next, Paul Sievertson shares stories of his life as a musician and time at KCBX as development director. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer, reporting from way out in the countryside, way beyond Santa Margarita. And we're at Paul Sievertson's Ranch. Hi, Paul. Hi, Tom. The reason I want to talk to you is your history, especially as it relates to KCBX. You go way back. You were development director? I was. I came here in 1992. Wow. From San Diego. And what brought you up to the Central Coast? That job. So you came up yeah. to the Central Coast to take the job at KCBX. Yeah, my wife and I had been looking to move out of San Diego topped off emotionally with our jobs down there. We were looking a number of places. Arizona was among them, New Mexico. But uh, 
we said the deal was whoever got the job, an acceptable job first, mm -hmm. we'd go there. So the other one becomes a camp follower. Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, I got offered the job. I was taking the local paper, and there was the listing for it, and uh, got the job and moved up here. And then there were a few years we had to sell our house down there and get this property get settled here and then Sue had to find a job. She was at the time curator of reptiles at the San Diego Zoo. Oh how cool. Yeah. That's and so she, so yeah, she's yeah. real comfortable out here with the rattlers. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But uh, she wound up teaching at the Tascadero Junior High School so everywhere we go in the county she runs into old yeah, I remember you. Students. Yeah. <laughs> now they're grown-ups. Yeah. yeah. You had a other life too. You're a musician. Yeah. I mean, I primarily I think of myself as a musician. Mm -hmm. A violin is a your violin is my main instrument. Mm -hmm. I grew up with a family string quartet. Went to Yale as an undergraduate. I was going to be a philosophy major. I lasted one year and then I, I declared as a theory and composition for music because uh -huh. they didn't have a performance degree at the time. I stayed on at the music school. Uh, for a master's. So at that time, did you see yourself at some point settling in, in a symphony? Yeah, although n symphony was never my my aim, mm -hmm. nor was soloing as a you know top notch. So maybe a quartet was Quartets, your home. That was that was where I yeah. cut my teeth and new music. So I played in the symphony in San Diego for some years, and when I moved up here, though, I didn't have any clue as to what riches there were mm -hmm. in the music scene. So it was a delightful surprise to get involved in symphony. So you're with the San Luis Obispo Symphony for a long time, right? Yeah, starting right away when mm -hmm. I moved up here. And then after a few years, I shared the concertmaster position with Pam Desenko. Mm -hmm. And since we both had busy other lives, then that worked out really well. Back to KCBX. Mm -hmm. So what was closest to your heart? as development director? At the time I was working in development at San Diego Hospice so I was so I cut my teeth on fundraising there and and when I wrote my application letter I, I, I said well you know I don't have any specific radio experience but I'll tell you the development is always the same. Mm -hmm. You develop relationships and you increase the revenues where you can most efficiently. So they <laughs> They bought. They bought that. They, they bought your act. <laughs> yeah. So, over your time there, looking back, what are you most proud of? Well, we weathered some real storms. There was 9/11, for instance, when that hit just before Pledge Drive started, and we had to b abandon that. And then we were, of course, thrilled by the response of the community that recognized the need for independent local public radio. And I had been a public radio listener in San Diego for years, so I knew what it, what it was about. And then, of course, their connection to music has been really important. One of the first times I met anybody involved uh, it was when I went to the Live Oak Music Festival that first year as an attendee. Although I think they, they threw me onto the stage playing the the Hardanger fiddle, the Norwegian fiddle that I, I had to sub for an act <laughs> at the last second. So over your time there, you were mostly, most of your music was with symphony, right? Quintet called Tolosa Strings. Okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Quartet plus a bass. Mm -hmm. And I was in also, um, Cliff Swanson got me involved in the, the uh, Mozart Festival that became Festival Mosaic, of course. And I did that many, many years, and that was a really rich experience with the people coming from out of town and playing with them. 
Oh, I, I should say also another thing that I'm proud of as um, development director at KCBX is the way we developed the uh, wine classic. At its peak, it was an eight-day, every-day affair. Wow, and you had, what, 500 volunteers? Something like some, that, Some crazy yeah. amount. Yeah. yeah, so that was quite a management problem. And I remember challenge. some stats that it was like the third largest revenue grossing wine classic yeah it was uh, right behind napa sonoma and it was huge right up there and yeah largely due to the enthusiasm and, and uh, leadership of archie mclaren mm-hmm. so he really was a ramrod for that oh yeah. yeah oh yeah and it got to the point that it was almost too overwhelming it was unbalancing the station we felt and in fact it was the uh, dot-com Bust the dot com bust of two thousand one that really did it in did it in yeah. interesting continued on its own right. yeah Archie they they created a new uh, nonprofit specifically for that the physicality of gathering all this wine keeping track of it and doing the auctions was tremendous and we basically had to build software from scratch to pull it off and now it's all available online and there was a whole sub dynamic i was loving that's the art and the artists that donated works of art that was cool yeah i really liked uh it was an idea that i started called the magnum opus oh we got a dozen artists to build boxes wooden or to decorate wooden boxes Mm -hmm. that held a magnum of special wine and people would bid on that Yeah, yeah yeah How did you fill that gap when the Central Coast Wine Classic went away? Well, we upped our pledge drive goals. We started the move towards the uh, monthly giving, the uh, sustainers. That has taken off, and that has been especially important during these last years of COVID mm-hmm. when they couldn't just, there was just no way of pulling off those live pitch drives. Mm-hmm. on air in a small room. Yeah, and they would have the dollar-a-day dinners and whatnot, yeah. and that all shut down, right? Well, it's yeah. been on... on well, during COVID. Yeah, yeah, right. Something happened in your life yeah. where you had to basically retire. Yeah. Well, what happened? Well, actually, I retired from the station in 2015, uh-huh. and I was noticing a real slowness of energy lack of energy Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until 2018 that I got the diagnosis for Parkinson's disease. So it's official Parkinson's? Uh, Yeah, Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. Of course it takes many manifestations. They know very little about it. Although, yeah. But I remember visiting you a while ago and you could not play the violin anymore. Yeah, Yeah? it it became very difficult, which was the hardest part of the whole thing. But then a miracle happened. You, <laughs> yeah. went, you went to Stanford Medical School. Yeah. Tell us about that. Stanford Medicine had a, the, uh, uh, an early adoptee of the, what's called DBS, or Deep Brain Stimulation Surgery. I call it the uh, Delta Beta Sigma uh, Fraternity, <laughs> where initiation involves drilling two holes in your head, yeah. dime size, putting electrodes down there, and then they turn on a very small amperage that's always going, and it's the idea is to interfere with the interference mm-hmm. of dopamine production in, in the brain. 
So it changes your chemistry. Yeah, yeah, and it seemed to work really well for me. Mm -hmm. And you can play. You can play the violin. Well, that comes and goes. Uh, I I don't feel competent enough to continue as a full-time symphony. I have sat in on some performances. And you could not do that before the Stanford surgery. Um, not with any comfort. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm. It's still something I'm working on. I mean, this is no cure, but it has certainly ameliorated my symptoms. And you're conscious enough to diagnose yourself and monitor? Constantly. I mean, it's it's sort of like getting old is part of it, too. You you Mm -hmm. become more and more conscious of every part of your body and what it's doing or what it isn't doing. But Parkinson's becomes a convenient excuse. Mm -hmm. Again, back to the here and now. Music. Talk to us about how and where where that came from well no today you know how you you engage as a listener as a performer yeah well when i knew i i had to resign from the symphony and my last season as concertmaster was 2017 and i realized that i I was not contributing to the level i needed to in that position so i i pulled back and a couple of years ago, I remember you saying you're re-engaged with symphony. Well, I yeah, but more, I'd say more on the de- development side. Mm-hmm. I've continued as chair of the development committee, and and I was there through the COVID environment when we were just trying everything to keep things going. And, you know, people were were very responsive. Mm-hmm. Crazy ideas like I don't know if you ever saw any of our drive-in concerts <laughs> at the drive-in movie theater. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't do it in a theater because that was right. nobody wanted to host that. But we did it on the meadow at uh, Madonna Drive-in Symphony. I love it. Yeah, and you know, sparsely attended. But then we mm-hmm. tried everything about packaging online performances, and of course, people were trying things all over the country. So it was really a fascinating time. And at the same time, there was the drive for more inclusivity in all the arts. So some really good things have come out of it. Now we're full throttle. When I listen to music now, it kind of hurts because I realize the way I would like to do it myself and like to like it to sound like that, but I'm not so so sure I can really pull it off. Out here on the ranch, do you just sit down and play sometimes for fun? Specific projects, like uh, my wife is doing one of the open studios tours. Mm-hmm and down at her mentor's house in San Luis Obispo those two weekends, and they've asked if I could just bring my fiddles along and, and play. So I'll, I'll be figuring out something. I've got a lot of music equipment in my music room where I can record and overdub. And then there was one other project that was significant for me during COVID, which was that I got in touch with two others who were members of Stone's Throw. It was a trio in San Diego that I did after I had gotten out of symphony there. And we made an attempt to revive our repertoire of some 45 years ago. Health issues kind of put a stop to it, but it was a whole lot of fun reconnecting with those two because that was one of my most significant musical experiences of my life. And we were doing music, which at the time was 50 and 60 years old, going back to the turn of the century, early jazz age and blues, and as far as early rock and roll, and a lot of novelty songs. And, uh, and we that was at a time when you could actually get a job as a trio in restaurants, doing lounges, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those days are, are long gone, it seems like. If you could choose any musical genre 
to play? String quartets. In what period of history and oh, music? Way. I would say any any period. Any? Yeah. When I was young, I mentioned we had a family string quartet just among siblings. And uh, Was that your dad's impetus? No, my mom was a cellist and pianist, and she had five kids, and it was almost like by design. You know, you're going to play violin, you're going to play... <laughs> Oh, well, you'll play viola, and Jim, you'll play cello. And we had a coach, an old-world violin shop owner in San Diego, fiddle and bow music shop on Broadway, which is now a tattoo parlor. Uh, and, uh, I mean, we got into it really deeply. Do you ever miss San Diego, or, or is traffic a deal-breaker? Oh, no. It, it was a while for a while, but then Alaska Airlines put in the direct flights. San Luis, San, San Diego. Nice. And that's made it a breeze because mm. all of my daughters and grandchildren are down there. And how about the train? Have you taken the train? I've done the train. When, that... I, when I need more baggage, yeah. yeah. It takes time, but it's mm -hmm. a relaxing it's way to fun, travel. It's fun, yeah. But man, the flight is 45 minutes in the air at the most. That's crazy. Yeah. Great visiting with you. And a pleasure. Paul Sievertson. Thank you very much, Tom. And thanks for all that you have done at KCBX for those years, maybe as as long as just about anybody. Yeah. Uh, 40, I think. Yeah, 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 fantastic, taking us around the world with your stories and your connections. And Paul Sievertson, thanks again. Thanks, Tom. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer, reporting from way out in the country, beyond Creston. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast, and you're listening to Issues and Ideas. I'm Gabriela Fernandez. A local violinist is bringing live music to hospital patients across the Central Coast. It marks a new beginning for her as a certified music practitioner. Beth Thornton has this story. I met Bryn Albanese outside at a local hospital in San Luis Obispo, where she had just played her violin for patients in the ICU. We sat in a garden, relaxing near a meditative fountain. Definitely a new chapter in my life as a musician. As a concert violinist, Albanese has performed on big stages around the world. She's toured with the Boston Symphony Orchestra and the Boston Pops and San Luis Obispo locals know her from Café Musique. These days, she often plays for a single patient at a time in hospital rooms and memory care facilities on the Central Coast. Being a person who performed music as a performance to many, many, many people, solo or with orchestras or chamber music, coming full circle around to music as a service, as one of the only certified music practitioners in the region, Albanese went through an intensive training program that brings together art and science. She studied the healing effects of music and how it's not just good for the soul, it's good medicine too. A music practitioner is prescriptive with music in the moment. 
I am trained scientifically to use the intrinsic elements of live music as a type of therapy for different patient conditions. Albanese says upon arriving at a hospital, she reports to the nurse's station and is directed to patients who might benefit from her services. For example, someone recovering from heart surgery. That would be a certain type of music that I would play for them. And usually I would choose a music that I've learned called vital signs stabilization music. There's also music specifically for patients with high anxiety and pain. That kind of music is called relaxation response. So you're basically, it's my job in that moment to try to lower the patient's blood pressure, um, possibly. That would be one of the, my goals in that moment. And to, to get their, them to breathe. Albanese says her specialty is working with dementia and Alzheimer's patients. She plays memory music, mostly familiar songs from the past that her patients might recognize. Perhaps like Moon River or Simple Gifts, Over the Rainbow. Somehow, those simple tunes refocus the patient, and once in a while, you get someone singing. Albanese also carries her Native American flute with her. She says the lower vibration of the wooden instrument is better suited to patients who are in palliative or comfort care. The slower the vibrations, the more the body can actually relax. She calls her work Numa Melodies. That's Numa with a P. It is your breath and it's your life force. It's what keeps you alive. Albanese knows from her own personal experiences that music promotes healing of body, mind, and spirit. And she says the practice is gaining acceptance in medical settings. Certified music practitioners were at one point more common on the East Coast than they were are on the West Coast. Now we're starting to see more in some of the bigger cities. Her hope is that the field will continue to grow and that more musicians will get trained to provide this type of therapeutic service to patients right here on the Central Coast. For KCBX, I'm Beth Thornton. been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org.